This is David Colosi for Clock Tower Radio at clocktower.org. And today I'll be talking to uh, Peter Shelton, artist, uh, sculptor extraordinaire. Uh, for uh, at least three, four decades, he's been making uh, sculpture and art and um, uh, adding a lot of stuff to the world, a lot of very cool stuff. Uh, he's received a Guggenheim Fellowship, multiple National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, the Tiffany Award, shows for L.A. Louver and Speroni Westwater. Um, it's three public projects that I'm aware of, Indianapolis Public Library, Seattle Tacoma Airport, Seattle Seahawks Stadium, and the LA Department <coughs> Cultural Affairs. Is that the fourth? That's correct. All right, so four. Um, and uh, he lives in LA. And welcome, Peter. Thank you, David. Thank All you right. for having me. Yeah. So I was watching one of your. <coughs> well, every time I see you, uh, at first I thought it seems like you get younger every time I see you, but then I realized your spirit is sort of the same. The same youthfulness, and uh -huh. in one of your in the Indianapolis video on your website, you refer to yourself as a professional boy, and I thought that was pretty good. So if you could just talk about maybe what you meant by that. Oh, I just I think the um, um, I, I think it just means that I have to figure out a way to um, survive and and still make my work, which has really no particular practical value in the world, and nobody really starts off wanting it i have to convince them that it's so special that they need to have it and um and the only way that i actually make the work is to stay in touch with the part of me that is playful and youthful and fearless and at the same time i have to make sure that i don't get my head cut off right. <laughs> in the process of making it because i overextend myself somehow or i overextend myself and don't know how to get back to the main trunk of the tree yeah. so I, th I think it just is it's it's kind of a split personality between trying to to be very um, open, playful, um, speculative, risky, and at the mm -hmm. same time try to figure out how I actually finance that. So there's some part of me that's a little disassociated that serves <clears throat> my office manager that taps me on the shoulder once in a while and says, it's time to <laughs> pay this bill or you don't, you really can't afford what you're doing right now. Right. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think anyone who, anyone who's that sort of motivated driven obsessed with their work is a professional child always it's sort of that dual spirit um and what you're saying about these these things that you make you have to convince people to want them because they really have no uh <clears throat> you know they're not they, you don't make art that sort of you know fights for social causes or anything they're sort of these objects you're putting in space uh well, they do fight for people in that sense. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, if you think about, um, I just, I have a hard time putting, I kind of think of art as a, as a kind of uh, the way you might view a, something that grows in your backyard, a tree or something. And I think that you can trim it and you might be able to transplant it and you might be able to put it in context of other things. But at the end of the day, you really, it's really something that kind of grows and has its own kind of character. And um, not to mystify it, I just think that there's a part of us that is um, as instinctual uh, in making art as any other instinctual uh, activity we have um, in surviving and socializing and creating community and, and uh, relating to other people. And I think all that is, um, is a very natural part of ourselves. And so I always find it a little bit hard to, yes, you can put a, 
a political slogan up on your tree, that would be nice. I'm sure it would it would be happily support that. <laughs> yeah. But it, in its own nature, I don't think is is essentially you know it's there in its being as a part of our you know um, uh, as a part of our adaptation as human beings. And in fact, it's really what distinguishes us as human beings. Uh-huh. So yeah, and I think that with your work in particular, that the human being part and the the human part and the the body part is. Uh, it's kind of consistent all the way through your work. Um, there's always some, you know, sculptural relationship between the body and the object, but your work has a lot of reference to the body. There's that one, the one pole with all of the holes in it that refer to all the orifices in your body, which is, you know, an early version of that. And then some of the later work is like these enlarged, like pancreas forms or something. There's this, you know. Pancreas, yeah, um, uh, sure, and other organs. Well, I mean, it, part yeah. of that comes a little bit just naturally to me. I was the kid in, in fifth grade that knew all the bones and muscles and, and anatomy, and was sent off by my fifth grade teacher to the eighth grade class to explain to them about the human body. I had a grandfather that was a small town doctor, and yeah. I was at one point a pre med student in college. So part of that comes naturally, but I think it also comes a little bit out of. Um, uh, my experience of one as a kid always making kind of environments that I could climb around in and move around in and, and externalize myself in and um, which a lot of kids did but I did as you would know me to be uh, in a in a kind of crazy and over-the-top way um, and <laughs> and most kids would go home to dinner and I would be working until midnight so um, and then I think it came a little bit out of you know, my experience of going to the West Coast, I, I grew up, I was from Ohio, and I grew up in Arizona, and then I um, went to college in in, uh, in Los Angeles, and the work that really interested me there was work that surrounded you. It was kind of environmental, uh-huh. and, it, and it could be very ephemeral, could relate to things uh, like light and space, so you could be something like Jim Terrell, who was a teacher of mine at Pomona College, where I went to college, or James Irwin. I mean, uh, or, or um, Bob Irwin, or it could be, um, you know, it could be very psychological, as in Bruce Nauman, or it could be, you know, an assemblage, a tableau kind of thing in, in Ed Keenholz. So mm-hmm. all those things were really interesting to me because they, they, they seem to break down the normal kind of um, distinctions between sculpture and uh, theater and um, and painting, for that matter, mm-hmm. and... and um, and architecture, and and combined all those things in one one kind of work, which made a lot of sense to me. And it, the other thing I think was true about uh, California is it didn't really seem to have a real cultural uh, stage or proscenium as I think a place like New York would have, uh, partly just because of the sort of framing the city itself physically gives mm-hmm. to the art world, but also because I think there's a kind of a long, longer-lasting, um, more more in-depth kind of historical self-consciousness in a place like New York, and you obviously had all the European immigrant that came here mm-hmm. um, in and around the Second World War. So you go to L.A., and there's there's very little reference culturally for what you're doing. Um, uh, there were very few museums and galleries when I was first in L.A., and so I think a lot of the emphasis got to be the artist studio and the envelope of the artist studio, mm-hmm. and in a way that became the venue for the artist studio. And I think a lot of artists, rather than having a lot of cultural references for their work, um, that were easily supported and, and viewed and experienced by close to them neighbors and other artists. In L.A., it was so diffused that I think that artists started to depend a lot more on their own physical, their bodies uh, yeah, yeah. as a way of, of, of verifying and embedding the content of the work. And uh-huh. so instead of finding um, immediate cultural 
significance from the sort of cultural community, I think a lot of artists sort of figured out that that they would have to find significance, meaning, and substance in their own bodies, and in their own bodies were sort of readily available. You know, yeah. some, somebody asked Bruce Nauman why time, why yeah, exactly. early years, why he used his himself and his work. He says, "Well, I'm, I was right there, and I really had no other resource, yeah. and I just used that." So yeah, the whole Beckett walk thing when right. he's in his studio, it's just lets his body just in space. <laughs> And, and also it's sort of, and I think if you don't have, a, you know, a kind of clear collective content, you know, like Catholicism in Italy right. and the Renaissance, I mean, or in, in Catholic Italy, um, what you end up, sort of say, what's a suitable content for work? Yes, you can use it for um, political or community organizing or other kinds of social good work. But it's sort of like what what is the natural content for art and and sculpture particularly, I think has a lot to do with externalizing your your some ideas and some feelings about your physicality and space around you and so and it's naturally going to be involved with actually rather meaningful things like your mortality and your mm-hmm. and your sense of you know weight and your and your sense of lightness and you know sort of contradiction between your the your psychological mental emotional processes combined uh, in in contrast to your mm-hmm. rather thuddish heavy corpulent right. body so right yeah and how you occupy that space with objects and i mean you've also done some really architectural things it's sort of this architecture of the body and the body of architecture um like the um don't remember the name of the you mean like floating, floating house, house floating house dead man. Yeah. yeah yeah um yeah i just like at some point i think actually um i'm not sure that architecture sculpture theater are really that much different in its uh-huh. most primal state because i think they're really all kind of extensions of not just our physicality, but of our, of our, our kind of need to to um, externalize and create some kind of analog to ourselves, where we get a sense of of you know, it's like looking in a mirror in a funny way. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also something that um, is inherently inert and dead, and yet you're sort of kind of curious about what it's like. It, it has life in it, mm-hmm. some of which, of course, is you know is either projected, but some of it has a lot to do with just how we kind of understand our own vitality. So Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the scale, of, you mentioned the scale and proportion to, like some of your work, when you walk in, or you made it so that, like, the femur bones, when they're hanging from the ceiling, they're sort of aligned with your femurs or, you know, your eyeballs and your testicles or... Um, or the the shoes, those iron shoes that you put on. So there's there's that scale, but then a lot of your work is really inflated to these like extreme proportions. Like some of the biological things forms that I was thinking about, where um, they're sort of inflated. And one reference I have is like when I was well, I still have them. I have these fever dreams sometimes. And the most particular one was in. In Switzerland, I saw these Rubens paintings, and I had this dream where these bodies were just like inflating. And I've always had that sort of, it's just this ex- like physical experience of things inflating. Like one was Toucan Sam was just getting really big, <laughs> or, or my mattress was getting really big. Um, so sometimes when I see your work that looks like these biological forms, they, they have this feeling of this inflated, you know, maybe it's not a pancreas, but it's some sort of organ. internal organ. Um, so the two, two things with, with that inflation, 
just in relation to scale, but then also just in relation to dreams. I've know I know you've had some work that came out of some dreams. Um, yeah, I don't know that I've ever specifically illustrated dreams. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking Buddha belly for. Yeah, well, I took a lot. <laughs> I took a lot of. Uh, I, I took seriously and kept dream journals avidly when I was younger, and particularly, I think partly because you know, um, I think it's part of you know, our education is to be make us um, self conscious and to help us understand the context which we're in um, historically and culturally, I think it's unavoidable um, for anyone, honestly, um, to not go through that process. But then the strange thing is to rediscover your your professional boyness and also mm-hmm. to sort of find your own voice. And I think that... Um, so dreams were sort of a way for me, not necessarily to use them to illustrate, but more as a way of, as a kind of touchstone. And, you know, mm-hmm. that felt like a natural part of my person. Yes, a lot of your dreams are filled with uh, odd infinitum and debris from the day before. But every once in a while you have one of these sort of big dreams that feels like it's, it, it has no comparison in reality. It seems, mm-hmm. to, it seems to capitalize and, and focus sort of big relationships between things. And so I, I use dreams more as a touchstone that way, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like what the, ver- the, the, vera- the veracity of the work I was doing. And, um, and early on, yes, I was very interested in this sort of, you know, physically plugging yourself into the work or comparing yourself to things mm-hmm. next to you for a few reasons. One, one because I thought it was a way of, of, of literally triggering, because um, I sort of have this idea that your consciousness doesn't just reside in this sort of ethereum above your head, but is in mm-hmm. fact embedded in all parts of your body, and it's not a new idea. There's, there's a lot of um, a lot of Eastern thought that sort of revolves around you know foot consciousness and belly consciousness yeah. and navel consciousness and all these kinds of things. And so I, I sort of literally was trying to figure out a way a little to trigger those things. Um, but later on, I, and partly because it was a ways of, you know, if you had something really heavy up around your head, and you normally think of your head as being the space of thought and, and, a, and an immaterial place, mm-hmm. the idea that you turn your head into sort of a cabbage, you know, like a, like a, you know or a right. cantaloupe inside of a box, um, right. it just puts a strange warp on, on, on the way you normally think about your, you know, where weight resides. Yeah. And, and, or having something hanging above the floor that seems to be moving and, and, and yet it seems fixed um, kind of subverts a little bit your sense of place. You, you're assuming mm-hmm. that you're very firmly rooted because it's a kind of concept in your brain. But in fact, we're rather, rather, rather um, unrooted in a lot of ways. And, and, mm-hmm. and in fact, are and rather transient if you think about our ultimate um, ending. So I'm a little less literal about that stuff these days, yeah. though. Yeah, and the, like when you did the sixty slippers, that that sounds like sort of what you're talking about, where these these iron discs were hanging just a fraction above the floor and just moving ever so slightly. And I think you talked about it as like you're on one train and there's another train moving next to you, and you're not quite sure for a minute which one's who's moving. Who's moving? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, just have to do is Grand Central where you're getting out of the train, and yeah. one train's pulling in, and you're pulling out, or one or the other, and you're not really sure which is moving, and you get this strange. Um, not vertigo, but a kind of weird um, uh, momentary slip in your in your sense of, of place. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, 60 Slippers was sort of a, to create a whole room of low-lying, um, sort of very flat aspect um, cones that hung from the ceiling, and but just above the floor. And you walk in, and you're sure they're all sitting on the floor, and 
the cable seems taut, so you think, well, it's a heavy thing sitting mm-hmm. on the floor. And in fact, after you, you steal yourself a little bit and move around, you begin to realize, oh, they're all kind of moving slightly. The building's always in movement because of traffic or mm-hmm. natural sway of things. And at first, you're sure the objects are moving, and then it's then at some point you're not really sure whether the floor may be moving. Right. So you, you, you get a kind of subversion of that thing. Yeah. And that seemed to be an early decision to hang things, like rather than sculpturally kind of set things on the ground, which you've done too, but it seems like consistently you've hung things. It you know, partly came a little bit from there was a sort of an admonition, which I liberally ignored as a student, which was to make objects, because in general there was a kind of pressure to make a kind of didactic or polemical kind of thing that right. demonstrated your your appreciation of either some social or historical right, reality. Seventies, um, and yeah. so the idea of making an object and particularly something sat on a pedestal seemed like a bad idea or seemed like a no no. But also, I think it was, you know, the pedestal becomes its own kind of formal reality. So I thought, well, if I hung it from the wall or hung it from the ceiling, I wouldn't have to deal with the pedestal. Yeah. But it was also a way of kind of, you know, which I think is typical for sculptors, is this thing about, you know, using movement and gesture and um, as a way of defying weight and gravity, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of like, and, and you know, it's, it's sort of a Pygmalion thing, too, about how do you animate something, how do you bring it to life, how does it seem like it's alive when obviously it's just cast iron or something else. Mm-hmm. So um, I hang things on the wall all the time, which seems like a weird place to put sculpture, but yeah. I've re- I realize that it's kind of, I feel like a mockingbird in a painter's space. Um, yeah. You know, taking over their nest because you're really relying on the convention of thinking about the wall as a kind of conceptual window, almost uh-huh. like a little theater in which you're normally looking through a window as you're looking at a painting, even if it's the flattest of all paintings, yeah. you still kind of realize that it's a kind of conceptual window, even if it's just paint on the surface of the canvas. Uh-huh. It still is a, an opening into a kind of concept space. And so you put some sculpture on the wall and you think, well, this is weird. It's just floating in, yeah. in space. And, and Whereas you take the sculpture off the wall, um, it's a thing uh, on the uh-huh. floor. You put it on the wall, kind of, where is it? It's, so yeah. it, it's been a, a common thing for me. Yeah. The most elaborate one was, of course, the floating house was putting this 50 by 60 foot, um, essentially kind of Japanese style, at least in terms of using strategy screen, building, hanging it from the ceiling from very heavy counterweights, mm-hmm. attached to it via pulleys and cables. And such that you could walk around in it. In fact, the building would move yeah. as you moved in yeah. it. You were walking around through it. Did so, you know, visitors could walk, get in, and walk through like so many yeah, people I mean, at I, a time. Yeah, I think or when something. we sho- yeah when we showed it in New York and in whenever it was maybe ni- nineteen ninety, um, I think we had t- we counted there like they kept count of ten thousand people yeah. went through it wow. two at a time. You can't have more than that because yeah. obviously the building is only structurally able to support so many people at a time but yeah yeah but that kind of literal use of 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 space i'm less interested in anymore because it Mm -hmm. kind of of got to be you started to think about you started to compare it to sort of like playground equipment or something and and it got to be too literal in a funny way so Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah the other thing between your you know pomona college and university of california you went to trade school so i mean a lot of your stuff is you know, it's there's a lot of engineering going on there. Uh, well, one again, like I said, there was really very little emphasis on the idea of making an object in mm-hmm. school. It's really more of a you know a kind of a critical studies kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and I 
so badly wanted to avoid going to graduate school right. um, <laughs> because I thought it was going to be even more of that kind of cerebral approach to making uh-huh. art, and I wanted to make a corporeal, um, embedded, um, you know, and um, um, embodied kind of work. Mm-hmm. And so I went to trade school in the little town I was born in, which actually has a had a big welding equipment manufacturing mm-hmm. company called Hobart Brothers and worked as an industrial welder for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned how to make things. I mean, there was, it was yeah. kind of fabrication, so it was very different than the kind of work I'm doing now where I'm really kind of modeling and carving and actually creating kind of forms that are really not easily fabricated. But I, mm-hmm. I learned something about how to put things together. Yeah. take a minute to remind people that we're on clock tower radio clocktower.org i'm talking to peter shelton and your website is petershelton.net but i also think dot com works too so yeah you said now you're sort of making forms uh you've also you kind of do these two things you make forms but then occasionally you you actually cast actual objects so it's sort of these these more ephemeral forms and then there's the the literal sort of cast object um i'm thinking of a lot of the stuff from things get wet your oh. grandparents a model of your grandparents house you know the snake which well, i'll get to in a minute <laughs> and uh you know uh, loaves well, of bread, yeah, i tend to work on things in sort of as kind of project to project so i don't know that i necessarily think of um you know, like the sort of wooden Gorbachev doll where you open it and there's a smaller right. Gorby and a smaller Gorby and a smaller Gorby yet again. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it, I tend to work from project to project. So um, so when you're talking about all these sort of bulbous inflated things, uh-huh. which are one consistency between that and the sort of bigger environmental things is that they're really still a kind of dialogue about inside and outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they're less about a sp- solid object than they are about a kind of, in fact, I call the small things tight fitting architecture. So, uh-huh. um, but then I worked, I, I, I was working on a commission for Dartmouth college that fell through as a commission, but, uh, I was interested in the subject, which was the museum itself was a sort of strange postmodern collection of, or, or a postmodern arrangement of their collection, which huh. allowed, um, high art to be mixed in with religious art, with domestic artifacts, you know, anthropological mm-hmm. artifacts, with uh, even, I think, engineering and medical models. And mm-hmm. it was kind of all mixed together in one big sort of soup. And um, I started with this idea of making a, f- a kind of fountain uh, that, that cascaded down a, a sort of balustrade outside the, the building hmm. that sampled types of work or types of things similar to on a par with what was going on inside the museum. And they'd all be bathed in water with the idea that the water would be the mediating and, and um, kind of equivocating thing for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was called, it originally was called All Things Get Wet, mm-hmm. uh, or sort of like I guess you could have the more biblical thing of all things under heaven get wet, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was this idea that everything is kind of bathed at some point mm-hmm. in water. And then the idea that water would have a lot of... Um, all the different kinds of associations from body fluids to 
to um, erosion, to mm -hmm. a sort of an abstracting quality, to a sort of uh, temporal moving quality, to a, a kind of um, 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 all the kinds of things you could think of that water we would associate mm -hmm. with it, and obviously um, even blood. And that, yeah. um, um, so yes, I sampled a lot of, but in a funny way, there were still kind of, the, the water itself was still kind of related to, in a, in a funny way, the sort of, aqueous quality of all the sort of hanging things in the past, almost like uh -huh. you, were, you, yeah. you were in a kind of dream fluid space. And the objects were all sort of bathed in water in kind of a very not 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 wild sort of fountain way, but in a kind of a dripping sort of way, mm -hmm. um, touched by water. Um, and they were, they almost made kind of organisms of themselves. So in a funny way, they're still very related to the, to the body. But we, we sampled things like we made a model of uh, Chartres Cathedral and right. another one of the Roman Pantheon and uh, of a house that my mother grew up, a sort of late Victorian Romanesque house in mm -hmm. Ohio, and uh, Ishiamadera, which is a famous pagoda in, outside of Kyoto, mm -hmm. and then a lot of other kinds of domestic objects from hammers and pears to, you know, shoes and, and yeah. bones and lots of other things. So yeah. um, I, I followed through with it as a series of uh, individual works that were um, set up with this this kind of water operating in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, with the you know, we met when I was working in your studio, and my favorite. There are many stories that I love. My favorite, my all time favorite, is. Um, I mean, you, you when I was working for you, there was one time you told me uh, you sort of characterized me in this way. You said something like. You know, you know what all the tools do, but you don't know any of the names of them. So you'd say, you know, get me an 18-inch auger bit. And I'd be like, is that the spinny thing? With the? You'd be like, sure, get it, show it to me, and then I'll tell you if it's right. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But then there was one day where you asked me something where I had no question, like, what you were asking me. You, We looked out in the driveway, and there was this rattlesnake that was, I don't know, four feet long. And you said, Dave, get me that rattlesnake. <laughs> And I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> I said, you're out of your mind. But we actually did catch the rattlesnake. You were in your flip-flops, and you sort of, no, you said it's easy. You just get a pole and put a rope to it and get that rattlesnake. So I guess one thing I wanted to ask was, when you saw that rattlesnake, did you know how you were going to use it? <laughs> or were you just like, I, I need that? <laughs> well, it was, first of all, I wouldn't leave the rattlesnake out there anyway, um, mm -hmm. just because it's, it's potentially a hazard. Uh, and this was a big one. And This was I, in Malibu. It, this is in Malibu yeah. at my studio. But, I mean, I was, you know, I grew up in Arizona, so I was around, around yeah. rattlesnakes. Although they usually uh, became flat as a pancake when, when ten boys would pile a ton of rocks right. on them in three Professional seconds. Boys Professional only. boys, exactly. <laughs> but I did know, yeah. I did know as a kid, in fact, there was a guy named Snake Man that used to he used to collect snakes for antivenom at, the, at Arizona State hmm. University. And, uh, and I knew how he'd catch them. He yeah. got with a garden hose and a snake hook and a, and a, and a lasso on the end of a stick yeah, and, yeah, and a gunny sack. And he'd just come home with a pile of snakes to give to Dr. Stonky in the, in the, in the, hmm. in the uh, science lab. And um, so I had been looking for a snake, and I had a former student who was really big on collecting roadkills. And um, she had in her backyard two rot-down cages, which were like, like rabbit cages that hmm. she would put uh, road kills out and and the bugs and insects and stuff would mm -hmm. sort of clean the bones and she had a <laughs> she had a funny relationship with a lot of pet stores and it was a sort of a sad <laughs> thing in a way where they would shoot where they would kind of out the back door give her you know animals that would perish and i guess oh, a right. lot of animals die in pet stores which is a sad thing about 
animals being sold in pet stores. And she said, well, I'll get you a boa or something else. And I said, I really wanted a rattlesnake. And Mm -hmm. so that day I I used that rattlesnake in in a, a work that's called church snake bed bone and it was a, it's a bronze sort of single bed mm-hmm. cast with a model shark cathedral hanging upside down underneath it and the snake was cast and um in bronze and the whole thing was one of these things get wet fountains mm-hmm. so i didn't know that i wanted to use the snake and i yeah. knew also that i wanted to catch the snake and not hurt it um mm-hmm. initially and I also knew that one of the ways, the best ways of putting a snake to its end is to put it in the refrigerator first where it really relaxes and gets yeah. nice and chilled and then put him in the freezer because he doesn't know that he's going to be frozen. Yeah. Yeah, I think I bought my lunch that day. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> put it in the freezer. I'm going out to get lunch. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Um Another question I've always wanted to ask you was... By the way, did yeah. we? one of the things I remember about you yeah. in those days is that you didn't really have a belt. You had a rope for yes, a belt. Yes, yes. Did we use your rope from your pants to collect catch that snake? No, okay. it, it probably wasn't long enough. But yes, that was the part of the rope belt series. Yeah. <laughs> my, part of my rope belt life. I auctioned off one of my rope belts at the... Guggenheim Museum. You're sort of like David elevator. Carradine in those days, you know, just know, with a, 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 sta- a, a and staff and a rope around <laughs> you and, and just simple, simple moccasins yes. that you walked in the landscape with. Okay. Living in my van. Um, uh, I've always wanted to ask you about your titles. There's this, I don't know if it's from sort of E.E. E. Cummings, the way you don't capitalize things or capitalize everything uh, and run the words together, or was there a different, because it's pretty consistent through your work. You've always connected the words. And yeah, I don't know. If, I mean, you're sort of more the literary person. I think it less less to do with E. Cummings than it had to do with with a kind of a kind of synthesis. Because um, a lot of the forms tend to be, um, you look at it and say, "Well, I've seen one of those before," but it also looks like something else, and mm-hmm. and it looks like something else, and and you know, it's and those things run together uh, create um, a new reality that that. Mm-hmm. My, I mean, sometimes it might be simple, like red shirt or something. Yeah. But in some cases, it's 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 you know it's called blue wiggle, let's say, because yeah. it's it, because it's a wiggly thing that's blue. I mean, it's just and it's um it's a way of creating a, an analog to the work. And I usually the title almost never precedes the work. It's more like mm-hmm. in the process of working on it. I I I say, oh, you know, we we made something called Ubu once that had a funny little conical-shaped head um, that reminded one of the character in, in the, the French uh, you know, 19th century uh, playwright, uh, Alfred Jarry, uh, yeah. and, and uh, this <coughs> famous thing called Ubu Hua, and, and the King Ubu. And so we were working on another thing at some point in the shop, and I said, well, this sort of you know looks like this giant, uh, some sort of insect, or I guess you could look like something out of Alien with this giant egg sack. At some point, I started saying, "Oh, it's this is mare ubu." So you know, you just get this as in mother ubu. So yeah. it's they're just ways of creating an analog to the work. Um, and sometimes you're saying, "Oh, it's a it's a whatchamacallit," and mm-hmm. and and you make up a word that is the synthesis that is corresponds to what seems to be the synthesis in the work. Yeah. And running it together also just turns it into some kind of you know, Seussian kind of mm-hmm. nonsense too. Sometimes where you you you. You you know I'm working on something now called down and up right well mm-hmm. it's you know it, if you look at it written out and put together it's down and up or done done up done up done right. up um, or something's red dress and it becomes redress because you leave out one of the D's and so you know there's mm-hmm. there's sort of ways of, of of warping at least a language thing and calling something and I'm not 
the kind of person that wants to call something untitled. So it's right, yeah. some people, that's a kind of a modernist trope that I'm not following. So Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does add, I think it contributes to a poetry that's already in the objects. And I mean, some of the objects are sort of whatchamacallits. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's funny that you bring up Dr. Seuss, because another way I was thinking about some of the, the work was like some of the more organ shaped things. It's kind of like, um, like an autopsy of a Dr. Seuss character or something, <laughs> you know. And there's this—I don't know if you know this Korean artist, um, Hyung Koo Lee, who who recreated the skeletons of like um, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner. <laughs> um, and then he's also putting muscular structures on the on those. Um, anyway, well, <laughs> having been a pre-med, having, no, sorry, <laughs> having been a pre med student, I, 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 you know, um, I've had doctors who have who collected my work and. Of course, I say I'm sure you wouldn't really want me to be the surgeon, you? <laughs> um, but because you, so it's sort of like learning it all and then kind of forgetting it and having it just be sort of part of your, you know, part of your inventive thing. You know, actually, the, the, that sort of quality too in the work came from again one of those sort of those sort of provisos about not making objects and particularly not making something figurative when I mm-hmm. was a student. It was all right if you made something figurative if, if the figure was you as a participant in the work. Right. Um, then it became very figurative. I mean, people like Jim Terrell or I had another teacher named Maury Baden who used his body in the work, um, but not in any depictive way. So the, the one way I sort of, after doing all these big fabricated installation works, the one way I snuck up on doing figurative work. And I know this would sound very strange to younger students now because they probably incredible liberty to do anything you want to do. Mm-hmm. But at least in the late 60s, early 70s, there was really an intense dialogue about what the limits were, what sculpture really could be, what mm-hmm. could make, what it could refer to, and you know, what, what's the purpose of it, how does it actually occupy the space. And I think that dialogue was actually quite useful. And But of course, it was as another generation following minimalism, uh, impossible to um, to really follow it up without having to break it apart again. So mm-hmm. I snuck up on sort of figurative ideas by sort of exploring my, my sort of anatomical roots. So mm-hmm. that was yeah. one way of thinking about it. Yeah. And the med school, med- medical school, was that at Pomona College? Yeah, it was, I mean, pre-med was, yeah. you know, so it's not really in medical school, but yeah. you're kind of doing all the sort of, you know, right. dissections and everything else and study that you would do in preparation for medical school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, we're almost going to be done here, but I did want to ask you about Van Morrison because in your studio there was a lot of, it was always Van Morrison playing, at least I when just, I was there. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing him in L.A. at one point, too. Um, and, yeah, just in, as far as your studio environment, I, that's one memory I have, it's like a lot of Van Morrison playing, but a lot of other music. But, but not Van Halen. No. Not Van Halen, no, different Van. And 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 I used to disallow the Doors only because I yeah. I, pl- I covered Doors tunes when I was a kid in high school, but I got to associate it so much with drugs that I just couldn't. Yeah, I just couldn't have it around. Yeah, you know? so yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, yeah. But what about Van? Uh, just yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that stuff from say Hymns to the Silence and Philosopher's Stone. That's the stuff I think I first heard right. in your studio. Um, and just as a motivational factor in your studio, I mean, a lot of all of us artists have a soundtrack that we play to. <laughs> and what is it about Van or? I don't know. It's a, I mean, I just, you know, I know that it's it's going to, you know, if I was on the desert island, I think I'd have Van, Marvin, and um, and Miles. You know? uh-huh. um, and yeah. I guess Dylan could come along. But somehow, <laughs> somehow being stuck on an island and listening to Dylan, you know, yeah. it seems so kind of urban and, and yeah, kind right. of cerebral. 
that just Van's got an emotional level that's just is very hard to very yeah. hard to um, you know and and a kind of and a kind of breadth somehow big breath in the work yeah. that seems really kind of extraordinary and seeing him you know play saxophone and guitar and piano yeah. and sing totally full throated at his at his age is kind of amazing in a way yeah. Um, which I, he still does. So yeah. I don't know that environment at all. It's, you know, I listen in the, in the shop now, I listen to a lot of, you know, usually listen to a lot of jazz and, and not so much rock and roll, probably a lot of singer songwriter stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, so Van being premier in that. And yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I watched a lot of interviews with Van Morrison on YouTube and stuff. And it, it's really like poking a possum with a stick. He doesn't want to be there at all. He's like, Oh, he's kind of growling. And well, he's, he apparently has terrible stage fright. So, <laughs> oh, really? um, yeah, in fact, because I used to see him like you'd see Miles, where Miles, I don't think Miles had stage fright, but, he, you know, sometimes you see Miles and he wouldn't, he'd just go and sit in the back of the bandstand and kind of not face the audience. And he'd kind of come out and look at the band a little bit and play a little bit and walk into the back. Yeah. And you hear him playing in the back. He was just like, or just sometimes, he'd be, sometimes he'd be very, very engaged, but sometimes he wasn't. And I, mm-hmm. I remember seeing Van a few times where he didn't face the audience at all. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, and I had a friend that that has used to manage a, a local venue in Dublin that said that he, that they had to break a door down to get him in to come out because he just a terrible stage fright. Sometimes. Oh really? But oh. in L.A., he was at the shrine. He was just totally talkative and yeah. you know and cracking, doing all kinds of yeah. He was very 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 engaged. In fact, one of his daughter, one of his daughters, came and sang with him a couple oh, really? of tunes, and yeah, yeah, it was kind of great. Yeah. Um, so talking to you is not like poking a possum with a stick. <laughs> it's, it's been a very good interview. But um, let's finish up with just what's what's on the horizon. What are you sort of working on? Or? Well, it's funny because you're talking about all these sort of bulbous, inflated things. I'm doing these big sort of flat things that almost we, we, we call them toast in the in the in the studio. Uh-huh. If they're big kind of soft, like mattress forms, kind of yeah. like big soft, pillowy, but fairly simple kinds of shapes. They kind of go back. Actually, interestingly enough, when I think about relative, the dreams do go back to a particular dream from 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 um, you know early seventies that I always remember. Um, and you know, I do a little bit of public stuff, but generally, the public mm-hmm. stuff is is um, they don't really want me. They just want me to apply my design licks right. to you know to make a bobble for some architecture. Um, so I do a little bit of proposals in that, and generally I'm just working on a bunch of new things in the studio. So, mm-hmm. um, and trying to figure out sort of the next next uh, phase of things. So I have a lot. I probably you know, and you know me. There's having been in the studio, there's probably 25 new things in the studio yeah, yeah. that are that are all kind of moving along in a glacial way, mm-hmm. um, and um, just kind of figuring out where I go. I never seem to have any trouble figuring uh, getting something new to do. Yeah, I just have to kind of wait for the this circumstance where I'm sort of forced into being. The professional part of my boyness, which mm. is, oh, we have a show. When's the deadline? Oh, right. how many things can I make? Can I afford to do that? You want yeah. to pay for this foundry bill? So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this is David Colosi with Clocktower.org. I've been talking to Peter Shelton, uh, and his website is petershelton.com. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Thank you, David. Peter. Okay. Bye. You can take all the tea in China. Put it in a big brown bag for me. Sail right round all the seven oceans. Drop it straight into the deep blue sea. 